This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, and dinosaurs! And I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini, and welcome to Dinosaur Week. Dinosaur Month, man. Two whole episodes. I know, but I talked to Barbara yesterday, and she was like, it sounds like you're memorializing dinosaurs. <laughs> well, like, we are, right? They died, all well, of them. Well, I mean, that's kind of true, but kind of not what this book is about at all it's literally the opposite of what this book is about (laughs) we'll remember them by bringing them back and causing ruinous ruinous problems so dinosaurs jurassic park and you may be thinking well this seems like a strange diversion amid an epistemological study and i tell you it's not in fact Much like other books, this book is basically just a long essay about science that had to have some dinosaurs in it so he could get it published. (laughs) I will defend that stance. Also, Crichton does like writing thrillers. Let's let's he does, but I will defend the stance that the majority of the important aspects of the book, and I have backup for this because of the movie. We'll get to that. (laughs) The majority of the important things in this book are not the dinosaurs. They are a monologue by one Ian Malcolm, which is chunked up and spread out throughout the course of the book. It's pretty great. I'm not going to lie. Plato would be proud. He would be super proud. (laughs) Also, this book is great. Like, even though it requires, you know, you, you have to go through some monologuing, which if you're a pure thriller person, maybe not interested in that. But if you are, and you also like thrillers, this is like the best of both worlds. (laughs) Because it's a good thriller and it's, good at saying things it's good it's at saying really things. fun yeah spoilers we like this better than Kurzweil. <laughs> even if i disagree with Crichton on some of the minor points but hey that's part of the fun as well i trust that you have heard of jurassic park <laughs> if you haven't the conceit here is that crazy capitalist decides to make a theme park with dinosaurs of dinosaurs by reconstructing them from DNA that was taken out of mosquitoes that were trapped in amber, which is a fascinating conceit that I sort of appreciated sort of aesthetically. Like, oh, that's a that's a novel, tidy solution to yeah. this problem. But that's how they got dinosaur DNA was out of mosquitoes trapped in amber. And then they've recreated dinosaurs. And then they needed to test the safety and stability of the park. Lol. <laughs> and so they brought in some people... To do that, some scientists, a mathematician. No, no, no. Let's get it right. A rock star mathematician. <laughs> uh, well, if we're being extremely precise, he calls himself a chaotician. Yes. Which is just, okay, fine. And so uh, this group of people also includes a lawyer and a PR person and uh, the the crazy capitalist grandchildren and oh, just a... A menagerie of characters, the main lead scientist of the island, all sorts of grand. There's really great characters in this book. Um, None of them change even a little bit. There's no character development at all in this book. Not even one sentence of character development. Literally no efforts. That is, however, pretty typical for thrillers. So if you're reading a thriller, you know what you're signing up for. And also there's enough characters that it stays interesting. Indeed. And so all these people converge on this island to test the security and stability of the island. It is neither secure nor stable. And then the next 200 pages are them fighting their way out of the island. There's another rapacious capitalist who is unhappy with how he's been paid by the 
rapacious capitalist running the park. Who found a separate rapacious capitalist, <laughs> a third one. There are all sorts of rapacious capitalists in this book. <laughs> Jurassic Park, or the dangers of rapacious capitalism when applied to <laughs> neuroscience and biotechnology. That's how this would have been titled if it were written in 1904. Uh, or... uh, certainly, certainly. So he finds a third capitalist who is willing to pay him to steal the the dinosaur DNA from Jurassic Park. And to do this, because he is a coder who has built the security system, he will just turn off the security system for 18 minutes, drop off the DNA at the boat, go back to Jurassic Park, and turn on the systems again, because, like, that won't be a problem at all. <laughs> Turning off the security systems of your park full of dinosaurs, I'm sure there will be no problem. To be fair, it was only a part of the park full of dinosaurs at first. Yeah, at first. Until it wasn't. It was supposed to be contained, which is largely the point of this whole book, isn't it? Can you contain nature? The book is great. That's really and truly the summary of the book, just as it is the summary of the movie. The movie is actually a really great adaptation mm -hmm. of the book, which we'll get to in a minute. The main function of the book, other than get off the island, <laughs> is to talk about the ethics and epistemology of recreating dinosaurs off of DNA. And in particular, whether or not you can actually control this sort of genetic process. Right. And like originally it was like, you can't just create dinosaurs. But as Malcolm gets more and more going through on the course of the book, he basically just says, you can't control science. And then he's like, you can't control nature. And then at the end, he's basically like, you can't control anything. anything. Now, and he's you? not wrong. <laughs> he's not 100% right, but he's also yeah. not wrong. Yeah. One of his critical theses is that they don't actually understand what they're doing. They have figured out how to do a thing in a sort of mechanistic way. They have figured out how to flip some levers and turn them on, but their doing so doesn't grant them wisdom and doesn't grant them control and doesn't grant them the wisdom to know that they don't have control. They want to call it simple. And I'll read later in the episode a critical monologue from him, which actually gets reproduced slightly truncated, but nonetheless reproduced in the movie because it is such a critical element of the thesis. In some sense, it is the paragraph that is the thesis of the book on how simplicity and chaos and control and scientific power and epistemology all play together. It's it's great. Yeah. The interesting thing he does throughout the book, I would say, plot-wise, is he introduces you to the characters, makes you like them well enough, even though they're a little rough in terms of how, how he sketches them at first. You have the slightly grizzled older paleontologist. You have the hot, young, blonde woman paleo botanist you have the rock star chaotician you have their rough sketches at first but you come to like them anyway they all show up on the island you get introduced to the oh you forgot you forgot the most important character the godlike timmy <laughs> i was getting there i was getting there <laughs> you get introduced to hammond who runs the island and then to hammond's grandchildren timmy in the books is great 
Timmy's sister Lex in the book is a nightmare of screaming about everything all the time. The movie actually did a great job of rebalancing this so that both of them are mildly annoying in the ways that children their age in these circumstances would be, but not catastrophically, horrifically, atrociously annoying the way that the sister is in the book, or exceedingly competent beyond his age the way the boy is in the book. Yeah, Timmy has godlike powers even though he's eight. In the in the context of the book, he's sort of insulting purposefully mm-hmm. all of these people that think they are in power because they are smart and old and have degrees. And then Timmy is like, I understand Unix and you don't, <laughs> which an eight-year-old probably could understand Unix. That's theoretically possible. <laughs> I love in the movie where that gets handed to the girl and she said, ah, this is a Unix system. I know this. And then it proceeds yeah. to display a system that looks like no Unix system. Literally not ever a Unix system anywhere. At all. It is media OS to the max. It is a terrible looking GUI of the sort that you would definitely have in the early 90s when they were like, look at this thing we can do. It was a faithful visual reproduction of what he describes in the book, though. So he's got that going for them. It, it's true. It's true. Yeah. The plot then runs forward with... All of these pieces that he sets up really in the first 80 to 100 pages gets all the pieces in motion and then breaks everything and lets everything fall out. So you're following Ian Malcolm as he ends up hurt and drugged up, which is part of the excuse for why he just rants and monologues throughout the rest of the book is because he's on a lot of morphine after the power goes out and a Tyrannosaurus Rex attacks. Which is a great conceit, by the way, and I fully approve of. (laughs) It is. If you need a guy to just monologue, have have his leg get (laughs) mauled by a Tyrannosaurus Rex and then have him be on morphine for the rest of the book. Totally works. Again, it was really tidy and I I read it and I was like, I approve of this decision. (laughs) You have the paleontologist trying to get the kids out from their being trapped behind dinosaur lines, one might say. That sequence is much extended in the book compared to how it goes in the movie. It makes sense. Two-hour movie versus 430-some-odd page, 440-some-odd page book. But Then you also have Hammond, who in both cases is the classical definition of the biblical idea of a fool. He will brook no... Well, he might remind you of someone, actually, Stephen, with his ruthless optimism about the park. This will surely all go to plan. We can control this. It's simple. Well, what's interesting is that there's two different types of Hammond in the book and the movie. So the, the we can discuss the book one now, which is, oh man, he's like Kurzweil <laughs> instantiated. Like he's ruthlessly optimistic. The movie one is a bit more hopeful rather than ruthlessly optimistic and a little willfully blind because he's so he's, enthusiastic yeah. about these ideas. But he's kind of a foolish old man character rather than I will overcome by the sheer force of my confidence in this thing. Yeah, he's he's an awful character in the book. Yeah. And he is intolerable. His end is fitting and grim. But in the movies, he's sort of like kind of all of us like if you have this thing that you really want to work and you're just like what if we ignored all of the things that are not working (laughs) everything that could go wrong right like if you've ever been in a bad relationship like that's hammond like no this relationship is fine it's going it's going fine it just bit someone's leg off no 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 i'm sure it's fine we're gonna we're gonna solve that problem (gasps) we're gonna we're gonna get over it we're gonna talk it out 
We're going to go back to the way that was. Your significant other is an axe murderer. No, no, no. We can work this out. I mean, that's your opinion, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's roughly where it gets to by <laughs> <laughs> late in the movie until he finally yeah. has his lovely closing line. Yeah. Well, in the book, he never gets there. They all end up concluding that we just got to get out of here. And both the book and the movie climax with the velociraptors demonstrating that they're more intelligent than anything else on the planet except maybe humans. And that's a maybe. Yeah. And pretty much making a mess out of everything and everybody. Yeah. And killing, spoilers, for a movie that came out almost well, 30 we years talking ago. Well, we're talking about the book and the movie because different people die in the book and the movie. It's true. In the book, at the end, Ian Malcolm dies. In the, in the end of the book, almost everyone it's dies. It's true. Hammond dies. Malcolm dies. Pretty much all the park staff die. Except Muldoon. Except yeah. the game warden Muldoon in the book, which is an incredibly important part of his argument that we will get to when we talk about the epistemological bits. The people who get out are Muldoon, Grant, Sadler, and the kids. And that's pretty much that's it. it. I mean, technically, some of the unnamed staff also get out because they were quarantined off to the side. Oh, yes. Side note, why didn't they just all go where the staff <laughs> were? They all survived. Also, at the end of the book, the Costa Rican army shows up and basically firebombs the island. That is not a thing they do at the end of the movie. Not basically. They they do firebomb the book. They literally call out the Costa Rican guard, which is apparently ready to destroy small <laughs> islands on the drop of a hat. So don't mess with those guys and girls. They will mess you up literally and uh they annihilate the whole thing the end and then they leave grant stuck in costa rica because the costa rican and american governments can't agree on whether they should allow him to leave or not which i thought was a really entertaining end of the book the interesting thing about the plot is that really none of it is a surprise in the broad strokes even if you haven't seen the movie before it surprises you in the details oh i didn't actually expect that guy to die i expected them, him to survive malcolm for example i didn't expect him to die pretty sad it was it was pretty sad but the broad strokes are like i said very much laid out from the beginning and to Crichton's credit they follow from the theses he lays out both in the film and in the book he defines this set of problems and then lets them play out. And the problems are, I think, best summed up as rapacious capitalism and pride in technological capability combined. And control systems. Yeah. And so those things interlock into how fragile is this system we've controlled in general? A book that wasn't written until many, many years later part of The Expanse, introduced me to the phrase, and it may have a provenance earlier than this, I would be unsurprised if it did, of complex, simple systems. The idea is you have a system which you've created. In the case of The Expanse, they're looking at it in ecologies in space, where it's complex because all the parts have to work together. But unlike nature in the real world, it's simple because it doesn't have any depth to it. It's shallow, and so it's very easy to trigger this failure cascade where you get one piece out of whack, and if you don't catch it fast enough, there's nothing there to backstop it, and so things get out of your control very, very, very quickly. The same kinds of things are in play in the notion of control in this system, and they're very much what Malcolm gets at throughout with his ideas around chaos theory, that apparently simple changes in an apparently well-controlled system— can lead it to spiral very much out of control because the 
repercussions of those small changes in this apparently simple system are wildly, wildly unpredictable. Yeah. And the only thing you can predict is that it's unpredictable and it will go out of control in ways you don't necessarily see coming. In fact, the way he demonstrates this is hilariously perfect in that after the system goes down the first time when Nedry goes off to turn over his dinosaur DNA and then gets killed along the way. By dinosaurs. By dinosaurs. The, they actually are able to get the system back online. They get the whole system back online. Unlike in the movie. But in the book, the problem is that because Nedry designed the system and no one else really knows how to work it, they turn everything back on, but they turn it on using auxiliary power because you can't just like turn on the main power from cold. You have to turn on the auxiliary power and then turn on the main power. This is the way it works in a lot of large systems. And so they never turned on the main power. And so they ran down auxiliary power to empty and then they had no power left on the whole island. And that's when things really go is because they forgot to press probably like i don't know like five buttons maybe (laughs) like they just didn't know to press that many buttons insert ian malcolm monologue here right like so that's a completely realistic way that things go badly like if you go and look at the history of like nuclear meltdowns you're like how did this all happen like it's usually something pretty simple and human that like because of x y and z then there weren't any backstops there or whatever Complex, simple systems. Yeah, complex, simple systems. But that's literally how the book falls apart, is that they forgot to turn on the main power. And so it results in the Costa Rican army, Costa Rican (laughs) guard firebombing the island. That sort of complex problem as a result of tiny, tiny things, which he also mentions in the book and the movie as the butterfly effect, is the whole premise of the book in a nutshell. Combined with the thesis of the book... You don't truly understand these systems, but because you've gained power over them, you think you can control them. I think I'll just go ahead and read the critical Malcolm monologue now. This is a couple paragraphs, and I'll skip some of the in-between bits. There's some dialogue and some other things that I'm just going to skip over because, as we said at the beginning, they're really not that important. From the 25th anniversary edition of the book, this is on page 342. At the sound of screaming over the radio, and the assertion that this is all very simple. Simple? Simple? You're a bigger fool than I thought you were, and I thought you were a very substantial fool. What is that going on out there? That's your simple idea. Simple, he says this in response to screaming. You create new life forms about which you know nothing at all. Your Dr. Wu does not even know the names of the things he is creating. He cannot be bothered with such details as what the thing is called, let alone what it is. You create many of them in a very short time. You never learn anything about them, yet you expect them to do your bidding because you made them and you therefore think you own them. You forget that they are alive, they have an intelligence of their own, and they may not do your bidding. And you forget how little you know about them, how incompetent you are to do the things that you so frivolously call simple. You know what's wrong with scientific power? It's a form of inherited wealth. And you know what congenitally rich people are? You can insert another word for jerks there. It never fails. I will tell you what I am talking about. Most kinds of power require a substantial sacrifice by whoever wants the power. There is an apprenticeship, a discipline lasting many years. Whatever kind of power you want. President of the company, black belt in karate, spiritual guru, whatever it is you seek, you have to put in the time, the practice, the effort. You must give up a lot to get it. It has to be very important to you. 
And once you have attained it, it is your power. It can't be given away. It resides in you. It is literally the result of your discipline. Now, what is interesting about this process is that by the time someone has acquired the ability to kill with his bare hands, he has also matured to the point where he won't use it unwisely. So that kind of power has a built-in control. The discipline of getting the power changes you so that you won't abuse it. Scientific power is like inherited wealth, attained without discipline. You read what others have done and you take the next step. You can do it very young. You can make progress very fast. There is no discipline lasting many decades. There is no mastery. Old scientists are ignored. There is no humility before nature. There is only a get-rich-quick, make-a-name-for-yourself-fast philosophy. Cheat, lie, falsify, it doesn't matter. Not to you or to your colleagues. No one will criticize you. No one has any standards. They're all trying to do the same thing, to do something big and do it fast. And because you can stand on the shoulders of giants, you can accomplish something quickly. You don't even know exactly what you have done, but already you have reported it, patented it, and sold it. And the buyer will have even less discipline than you. The buyer simply purchases the power like any commodity. The buyer doesn't even conceive that any discipline might be necessary. A karate master does not kill people with his bare hands. He does not lose his temper and kill his wife. The person who kills is the person who has no discipline, no restraint, and has purchased his power in the form of a Saturday night special. And that is the kind of power that science fosters and permits. And that is why you think to build a place like this is simple. To the rejoinder, it was simple. Then why did it go wrong? We're going to spend most of the next episode talking about like those seven paragraphs, I think, because pretty much. It's pretty much all there. That's pretty much the theme and thesis and argument of the book. And I don't entirely agree with it. I think yeah. there are important things that that argument misses. And to be fair, while that is the thesis of the book in some ways, there are things Crichton does in the text that make me think he doesn't think that his mouthpiece of Malcolm is entirely right. Let's remember that Michael Crichton was a working doctor before he did this, and he spent a lot of time doing scientific research for this and many other books. Yeah. He likes science, but he sees something critical here. Well, he he also, something that's not quite as accentuated there, but is sort of sidelined, is the scientific industrial complex, mm -hmm. which he loathes with a fiery burning passion. He thinks science should be science should be science, which is, again, we can talk about that. Right. I think what's interesting, and the reason that you know this is the thesis, is that he shoehorns this in early in the movie in a different scene because he says, we have to get this into the movie. But if you like take it out of context and you try to just watch the movie, you're like, what is that about discipline? Like, that was weird. <laughs> you just kind of gloss over it a little bit, but he's he's tagging you in here and saying, go read the book. When you get to page 343, you'll know. And a lot of the skipping over bits I got at were him justifying Malcolm continuing this rant because he's on morphine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. He does the thing there. It's not actually terribly dissimilar to Plato setting up Socrates and Phaedrus to have this nice argument. I told you that this would just be happening the entire time. It's everywhere. It's every dang book. I feel, I feel like next month's book will be the first one that just starts off from the beginning saying like, here we're going to talk about this. Also our background book, which we'll mention more at, at various points in the future, but... Eisenstein also does that. That's true, yeah. That's about it so far. And it has little relation to Jurassic Park, unsurprisingly. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> Though arguably, Jurassic Park, as Crichton conceives of it, is possible because of the 
changes wrought in how science grows because of the printing press. That's also true. Yeah, that's The rapid sharing of knowledge, the rapid ability to build on what comes before. Eisenstein actually calls out very specifically that as one of the subtle transformations that the printing press brought about. And it was subtle because it wasn't like the things that were happening were totally novel. It was that the speed at which they were possible changed. We'll circle back to that later. Suffice it to say that Crichton thinks that has had some awfully, awfully terrible consequences when it comes to the relationship between science and industry specifically. Yes. And so really, that's Jurassic Park, the book. The movie is a really good adaptation of the book. And I went back to the script to see how the script originally was written because I had some questions and found that the script itself is an even better adaptation of the book. And Crichton was involved in the script, so that helps a lot. But still, we don't have to have big discussions about, like, which one was better, because in this case, they pretty much both do the same thing. I would say that they are both, in many ways, exemplary in their genres and media. Yeah. It is hard to do a better... Not impossible. I've read a couple thrillers that I think might be slightly better, tighter thrillers than this. But it's it's top tier. It's... Yeah, very much up it's there. It's really good. And the same thing is true of movies. I don't love thrillers movie-wise. They leave me overly tense and uncomfortable. This one actually is pretty much right in my sweet spot in that I can watch it without getting super keyed up and nervous, but also still feel and enjoy the thrill of it. Yeah, there's a couple big jumps for sure. There definitely <gasps> are. And they did the thing that movies have to do if they're going to do it well, and they cut things, but they cut yeah. wisely and carefully, and they kept the integrity of the ideas from the book there. Yeah, they they cut the boring part, which was great. <laughs> they cut most of the boring parts. But yeah, that was it. That was Jurassic Park. You should and read it. was it. a really great palate cleanser yeah. after going through Kurzweil. Yeah. Chris and I both read it in like days, short numbers of days. Props to Stephen for suggesting that we include fiction in this this book club. It was a good call. Yeah. If you have other suggestions of fiction that talks about ideas and also is fun to read, <laughs> I think in about four to five months, we'll need another one. The music at the beginning of the episode was A Chime by Tanger. Thank you so much for letting us use it. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on patreon.com at winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you do so at a high enough tier, you'll get to come have private chats with us in Twist, our medium of communication and planning for all of this. You can also contact us whether or not you're supporting us in any other way besides listening by shooting us an email at hello at winning slowly.org on Facebook at winning slowly podcast or on Twitter at winning slowly. But we still like email the best we do as always thanks for listening